Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three in our series on diamonds. Now, if you haven't heard parts one and two, you might want to regress through time, listen to those first, but there's uh, no strict continuity to preserve in this series. So if you'd rather just listen to this one first, that's fine too. Uh, brief recap of the previous episodes. In part one, we talked mainly about the idea that first got me interested in covering diamonds, which is the question of whether diamonds, especially in the form of crushed up diamond powder, are poisonous. Uh, this has long been a belief present in multiple cultures uh, that shattered diamonds or diamond powder are lethal if swallowed. And we talked about some weird and fascinating stories of attempted diamond poisonings from history. We looked at the question of whether diamonds are actually poisonous or not. The answer we landed on was probably not. And at least one major author uh, from modern times on the subject uh, downplayed this as a myth with no evidence behind it. But we've also never found really strong evidence that diamond powder is safe. So personally, I'm still saying probably better not to ingest it. In part two of the series, we talked about how diamonds form and uh, how they're brought to the surface. We talked about some of the physical properties of diamonds, such as the fact that they are the hardest naturally occurring material on Earth and how the property of hardness differs from other properties like toughness, leading to the strange fact that you generally can't scratch or cut a diamond with anything other than another diamond, yet you can shatter a diamond with a regular steel hammer. Uh, we also talked about some wonderful uh, legends of diamonds, including the legendary Valley of Jewels associated with uh, the stories of figures like Sinbad and Alexander the Great, as well as some of the significance of diamonds in Hindu iconography. And today we're back to talk about diamonds once again. 
All right. Well, what's our first stop on the Diamond Express here, Joe? Well, I got interested in a, a specific question about diamonds uh, from the starting point of a scene, a movie scene you talked about in uh, part two, I think, which is a scene in Superman three where Christopher Reeve as Superman picks up a piece of coal. I think he's actually like standing at a coal mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he picks up a piece of coal and then crushes it into a diamond in his fist. Completely cut. Just already beautiful, ready to go. Yeah. And and huge, by the way. But this connects to something that uh, strangely is a uh, one of these well-known facts that may well not be a fact. Uh, And that well-known non-factual fact is that diamonds are generally formed in the ground out of coal. I have encountered a number of sources arguing that this is for the most part not the case, that diamonds are generally not formed from coal. Though this may be less of a settled question than it first appears, I don't know, we might examine that question in more depth if we happen to come back uh, in another episode and talk about diamonds some more. But uh, this got me thinking about comparisons between diamonds and coal. There are reasons that it would make sense to assume diamonds are just a sort of continuation of the coal forming process. So diamonds are made of pure carbon and coal is made of carbon. Coal forms deep underground. Diamonds form deep underground. It just seems natural to think that you start with ancient plant matter or organic matter of some kind, probably decaying plant matter in some kind of ancient swamp. It gets buried. It first turns into peat and then turns into coal. And then given enough time and pressure, it turns into a diamond. Now, for the most part, it seems like this probably isn't the case. Most diamonds seem to be older than most coal and formed deeper down uh, in in the Earth's uh, mantle than you would normally find deposits of coal. Uh, But there are these obvious physical similarities that they are both uh, chunks of carbon that come out of the Earth. Uh, But a difference to point out is that while diamonds are pretty close to pure elemental carbon, uh, well over 99% carbon by mass, coal has a lot of different stuff in it. Uh, The main constituent of coal is usually carbon, but its purity is more variable in the range of like 40 to 90% carbon, with other major elements like hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and sulfur making up the rest of the mass. But anyway, since, you know, the main thing people do with coal is burn it, it raised the question, can you burn a diamond? Hmm. I mean, as we've discussed, it would seem to just run counter to, if nothing else, the idea of the diamond, right? It's indestructible, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. Greek, wor- the Greek and Latin word used for the diamond is adamas, meaning unbreakable, indestructible. Well, I found this question addressed directly in several sources. One that I want to cite is an excellent blog post from 2014 by a West Texas A&M professor of physics named Christopher S. Baird. And so to start with a direct answer to the question and then uh, explain from there, yes, diamonds are indeed a carbon fuel source and they can, in fact, be burned, but they don't burn as easily as coal. So let's expand on that a bit. Fire or combustion, uh, as we've talked about on the show before, is a rapid reaction in which the molecules of a fuel source in the presence of heat rapidly combine with oxygen, producing additional heat and light in the process. So in order to have fire, it's commonly said that you need three ingredients. We, we know the equation now, right? It's fuel, 
oxygen, and heat. And you can prevent or extinguish a fire by robbing it of any of these necessary ingredients. Now, that fuel can be a number of different things. We know, for example, that pure hydrogen gas is flammable. It burns. Uh, but Baird mentions in his blog post that the most common form of combustion that we encounter in the world is carbon combustion. So uh, most of the fuel sources we burn in day-to-day in -day life are carbon-based fuel sources. That means carbon is the fuel in the fire equation. So you get a carbon-based substance, you get it hot enough in the presence of oxygen, and the carbon atoms will start to break their bonds with one another and with atoms of other elements in the material to instead form bonds with oxygen from the air. And this combination of carbon and oxygen is the reason that the main byproducts of burning carbon-based fuels are carbon-oxygen molecules like carbon dioxide, CO2, and carbon monoxide, CO. Uh, so one, one different way to think of building a fire, say, is making carbon dioxide. That is what uh, the, the, big, the biggest part of what this reaction is doing. Now, in fuel sources that have other substances in addition to carbon, there are additional byproducts. For example, fossil fuels that also have hydrogen content will also produce the byproduct of water vapor as the hydrogen reacts with oxygen to form H2O. Uh, but to come back specifically to carbon burning, to carbon combustion, the way it works is that, again, you have to get a carbon fuel source up to a certain temperature for the reaction with oxygen to start. That's the ignition temperature. But fortunately, you don't have to keep applying external heat because combustion is what's known as an exothermic process. The chemical reaction releases its own heat, generally more heat than you put in to begin with. And this heat that's released causes more carbon bonds to break and allows more carbon to combine with oxygen and so on and so on until one of the ingredients in the fire equation is depleted or removed. Uh, but this self-sustaining exothermic property is the main reason carbon combustion is so useful to humans. It's a net energy source for us. You invest a little bit of energy up front, and then the fuel and the atmosphere do the rest, letting you take out more energy than you put in. But this brings us back to this question. Since a diamond is made of almost pure carbon, wouldn't it seem to be an almost perfect fuel source? Uh, and at the same time, it still seems counterintuitive to think that a gemstone could burn up in a fire. I think because we think of a diamond as a type of rock and in our regular experience, rocks do not burn. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's totally the case. Like the idea of the diamond is as indestructible, but also when you, you know, at least dip your toes in some of the science about like high heat, high pressure formation, it, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing you'd be able to throw into a furnace. Um, even if we're having to imagine some sort of uh, like sort of sci-fi furnace to drive your diamond powered train across the surface of a distant planet. Right. But despite these intuitions, diamonds are carbon based products and they do burn. And this, in fact, brings us back to a historical figure uh, that we mentioned in the previous episode, the 18th century French chemist Antoine Lavoisier. Uh, who we talked previously about how he is credited with proving that diamonds are made of nearly pure carbon. Apparently, a major piece of evidence that Lavoisier produced in order to support that conclusion was an experiment showing that diamond could be burned and that the byproduct of its combustion was almost entirely carbon dioxide. Hmm. 
Now, on the fact that diamonds can burn, uh, often when I learn something like this, I, I like to see if I can see it with my own eyes, not that I don't believe it in this case. It seems like a well-established fact, but just kind of to have uh, increased confidence in knowing what it looks like and so forth. So I went looking for some trustworthy video of a diamond burning, uh, and I did indeed find several. Uh, a good one was a video put out by the Royal Institution for their 2012 Christmas lectures in which they demonstrate the burning of of graphite, which is also made of carbon, but far less compressed than a diamond, uh, and also the burning of a diamond. And Rob, I've attached some pictures for you to look at here in the outline, though, of course, we'll describe them for you at home. Uh, th this here is a diamond burning shortly after it has been ignited in a glass chamber with a supply of flowing oxygen. And one thing I would note about it in the, uh, in the early parts of the burning process is that I can't see what looks like a traditional visible flame, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the upward rising flame, like you would see coming off of a campfire. Instead, I see what looks like the diamond uh, glowing, like a coal glowing on a charcoal grill after the flames die down, except with those coals, they usually glow a kind of dull orange. Here, this is glowing 10 times brighter than any piece of coal I've ever seen and with a whiter shade of light than I'm used to seeing in charcoal, more of a, a yellow-white glow than an orange. Yeah, like if anything, this reminds me of special effects I've seen in movies and video games, like when, I don't know, Marvel's Captain Marvel is about to go supernova and her, you know, flesh starts glowing with uh -huh. this kind of like flameless intensity, uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but of course, this is not a Marvel movie. This is not a video game. This is real life. Yeah. And so there's this glowing imminence coming off of it. Uh, however, I did notice that later in the experiment they show there is what looks like a more traditional flame, uh, mostly blue in color coming off of the diamond. And I'm not sure why that was visible only toward the end of the burning experiment. Maybe it was just an issue of like lighting or camera angle, or maybe it had to do with changing conditions in the chamber as the diamond burns. Maybe, I don't know, something about temperature, or oxygen flow, uh, or something like that. But experiments like this confirm that you absolutely can burn diamonds. So that raises the question, uh, should we capitalize on this fuel source? Uh, Rob, you, you suggested the idea of like diamond punk technology earlier, you know, like the uh, run a, a diamond burning steam powered locomotive or diamond fired electric power plants. <laughs> For a few reasons, a couple of which may be obvious, one a little less obvious, I think that would not work out. Obvious point number one, diamonds are expensive and rare compared to other carbon fuel sources. Uh, of course, would not make economic sense to burn them as fuel. Point number two, which I think is less obvious, though diamonds do burn, they don't burn as easily as fuels like coal and wood. According to Baird, the reason for this is the strength of the bonds between the carbon atoms found in the diamond cubic. Uh, so you remember last time we talked about the, the crystal structure of the diamond in which each, so it's like a three-dimensional structure that is linked in all directions where each carbon atom is attached to four other carbon atoms with strong covalent bonds, meaning each of the carbon atoms is sharing pairs of electrons with its neighbor. And these are extremely strong bonds. Uh, and the dense structure of atoms that uh, is created within the diamond, the, these are the reasons why the diamond is so physically hard and nearly impossible to cut. 
These strong bonds and tight structure mean that it takes a lot of energy to break carbon atoms free from the diamond crystal. Uh, now, in the case of physical pressure, uh, you know, friction and impact, this explains the diamond's resilience. And in the case of combustion, it means that a diamond has a much higher ignition temperature than other carbon-based fuels. Uh, and I've seen different numbers for the temperature at which diamond burns. I, I guess, as with other fuels, this would depend on uh, environmental conditions as well, like the concentration of oxygen in the surrounding air and things like that. But the number that Baird gives is that a diamond burns in regular air at about 900 degrees Celsius, which is about 1650 Fahrenheit. And for a point of comparison, Baird says that the ignition temperature of normal wood in atmosphere is only about 300 degrees Celsius. So there is a major difference in the amount of heat you need to put in at the beginning to get a diamond fire started, though the heat necessary would be uh, reduced in an oxygen-rich environment. And then the other thing is uh, a diamond fire needs, uh, needs a rich environment of oxygen to continue burning. So you've got to uh, give it plenty of oxygen in order to keep powering that reaction of the oxygen in the air with the, uh, with the carbon. However, though it is much harder to burn than coal or wood, Baird does say you can burn or scorch a diamond with a regular flame, especially if it's really hot and has plenty of oxygen. Uh, he mentions that jewelers sometimes have to be careful if they're using a blowtorch to mold metal around a diamond, uh, since the diamond could technically burn, though it seems like from other things I was reading, without supplemental oxygen, a diamond typically won't burst into flames and disappear into smoke. It will instead like show signs of damage directly on the surface, which uh, could have increased opacity, making the diamond look sort of cloudy on the burned surface. Rob, I, I found an image of this uh, that I attached for you to look at here. There are parts that are of this. Uh, this is a faceted cut diamond, and it has parts that appear to be burn marks where it looks kind of cloudy and, and opaque, whereas the rest of it is very sparkly and clear. Interesting. Okay. Now, there's another thing that uh, Baird does not mention, but I was also wondering about with the difference in the burning, uh, in how easy it is to burn something like coal versus something like diamonds, uh, which would be the the porosity of the material. Because if you have a, a less dense, more porous material, it seems that it is easier for oxygen to get in and surround the carbon atoms and, and more easily react with them. Uh, whereas a diamond is very dense, very tight structure, you're essentially going to have all of the reaction with oxygen happening right at the surface layer. Another question this raises, I assume this would be the case, is that uh, a diamond powder would burn much more easily than a mm. solid diamond. This is true, though, of m most flammable things. You know, it, most of anything that you could set on fire in a solid form will combust much more rapidly and easily in a powdered form. And as a final point, thinking about burning diamonds, though, the interesting thing is that so they are a carbon-based fuel source. And this does mean that even if diamonds were cheap, uh, burning them as fuel, if we wanted to create that diamond punk world with the diamond-fired steamships and, and the locomotives, this would be yet another energy source that would result in adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, which, of course, is not exactly something we need to be adding to the menu of energy options uh, in the world today. Though I was trying to see if I could come up with an estimate on this, and I, I, I 
did not get anywhere. I suspect even if we burned all the free diamonds in the world, it would probably release very little carbon compared to what's already being emitted from daily fossil fuel use. Uh, but like I said, I, I could not come up with solid numbers on that. If any uh, excellent nerds in the audience want to draw up an estimate, we, we invite your efforts. What would be the carbon footprint of a brief attempt by planet Earth to go diamond punk? Yeah, I'd be interested to, to hear that. Also, I wonder if there are any estimates about how long it would take uh, to burn up all the diamonds. Like, imagine this scenario. I was just trying to come up with why would, what's a, even a very far-fetched scenario in which this would make sense. Let's imagine a, uh, Outer Limits-esque, um, uh, super advanced alien society des- decides they want to teach humanity a lesson. So they gift us this uh, device. And this device is a furnace attached to a doomsday uh, weapon. And uh, it's pretty simple. All we have to do is keep the fire in this furnace burning. And as long as the fire is burning, the doomsday device will not go off. But the furnace will only burn diamonds. You can only put diamonds in it. So that leaves the people of Earth to uh, figure out how they are going to collect said diamonds, uh, at what rate they are going to put them in the furnace, and indeed how long will they be able to keep this up uh, before there are no more diamonds to burn and the device goes off. This feels like a science fiction variation on the plot of speed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is kind of a speed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can imagine a a Dennis Hopper. Uh, Dennis Hopper is the alien in this imaginary Outer Limits episode. I really like this idea. Can you imagine, though, if aliens actually did come to Earth? We went to meet their ambassador and it's Dennis Hopper. That just (laughs) would not inspire confidence. Well, it depends on which, uh, what, what part of Dennis Hopper's filmography they're drawing from. Like the younger Dennis Hopper, you know, there were a lot of roles there where he was more of the um, relatable leading man. It's only, you know, uh, later in life where he tended to play, uh, uh, on the whole, more deplorable characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, by the way, I'm not insulting Dennis Hopper. I just mean like, <laughs> I was thinking we are greeted by the, you know, the photojournalist in Apocalypse Now or yeah. something. <laughs> Yeah, he had, a, he had a knack for playing uh, often unhinged characters, for sure. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's return once more to the ancient world. Uh, particularly, let's get, uh, let's get into some concepts concerning diamonds in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Oh, boy, I, I think we got some good stuff on this, uh, this one today. Now, briefly to refresh uh, about some stuff we talked about in the last episode, we did, uh, I think, bring up uh, Pliny the Elder's references to diamonds in his work. Remember, Pliny the Elder is a, a first century CE uh, Roman author who compiled a, a very important, influential sort of encyclopedia of what was known <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to you know to his people at the time, known as the Natural History. Uh, and Pliny, the, I think, is the very last volume of Pliny's Natural History that was devoted to uh, minerals and gemstones. And Pliny used in his work a term that was derived from the Greek called adamas, which uh, earlier sources used to refer to a variety of materials that were considered very hard or maybe indestructible, but from description were clearly not diamonds. Pliny confusingly uses this term to refer to a list of different materials, some of which it does seem are diamonds, but maybe others are not. Hmm. So, for example, a footnote in the uh, in the uh, one of the translations of Pliny we often turn to, which is available online, the Bostock and Riley translation, that is a footnote uh, saying that the author of this footnote thought that Pliny was probably not familiar with actual diamonds. However, this does not seem to be the conclusion of uh, Jack Ogden in his book uh, Diamonds, the King of Gems, which we have referred to a few times on this uh, uh, series already. Ogden does seem to think that in some of these instances, Pliny may be talking about diamonds. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get into to some of this. So um, 
uh, you know, drawing again from Ogden, also Ogden, along with historian Brian Fagan, um, in a source I, I referenced in the, the last episode, also get into this a little bit. But um, the introduction of diamond-tipped engraving stones during the early Roman period uh, seems to have transformed the world of uh, lapidary, allowing even the hardest gemstones to be drilled and engraved. So again, we have to remember that there's this interesting um, dual nature to the diamond in the ancient world where it's used seemingly at times initially as just a raw material to work gemstones that were already popular, colored gems. And then there's this transition into realizing that diamonds on their own are beautiful and are, are also suitable to be considered gemstones. Right. So in many cases, it's thought of as like a useful industrial material before it's thought of as a just beautiful decorative gem on its own. And, and this is important because to, to understand where we're going to go next, you need to realize that, yes, it does make sense to sometimes want to destroy a diamond in, in these uh, even in the ancient world, because, uh, again, not not all diamonds are going to be suitable for working into some sort of valuable stone. Uh, but also there are going to be uses for diamond fragments and diamond powders if you are working uh, stones, uh, other gemstones and, and preparing them to, to, to use in, uh, in in various bits of jewelry and so forth. Right. It's kind of an unbeatable abrasive. Yeah. And this brings us to the idea of <laughs> softening your diamonds up by soaking them in goat blood. Not just any goat blood, but the blood of a he-goat. <laughs> the blood of she-goats will not do. <laughs> yes. This is mentioned by both Pliny the Elder and later by Pisanius. Uh, this is the, yeah, the, the idea that while the diamond is hard and resistant to destruction, get yourself uh, a little goat blood, he-goat blood, let it uh, soak in there, and that will put it in, that'll soften things up enough that you can break it up and get, get what you need out of it. Now, Ogden points out that Pliny's source on this is uncertain, and it doesn't seem to be based on anything drawn from Indian diamond tradition. So again, remember, uh, India is like the uh, really the, the, uh, the hot area for initial diamond culture, and it seems to sort of flow out of India into other cultures, Mediterranean cultures, and as we'll discuss, also into Chinese culture and so forth. Uh, so this idea doesn't seem to directly relate to anything known to exist in Indian diamond traditions, uh, but it doesn't go away after it has been brought up. So there are writings... Uh, about it from the 1400s onward with descriptions of goat blood being used to soak and soften diamonds. In time, there were even writings on what sort of diet your he-goat would need if you wanted to use its blood to soften up your diamonds. Wow, that's elaborate. Uh, none other than Roger Bacon uh, refuted this uh, idea during the 13th century, um, though I, I guess not everyone listened to Roger Bacon because the idea seemed to persist. And uh, Ogden writes that, yeah, ultimately we have no idea where this came from, but it may be linked to various blood sacrifice rites connected to diamonds, much in the same way that such rites were associated with ancient metallurgy. Mm -hmm. uh, he also speculates, and this is where it gets really, really interesting, that maybe gem cutters would have needed to crush diamonds to produce chips for their work, like we were saying, and a working medium or paste would be useful to keep those bits of diamond from flying all over the place. I think we touched on this in the last episode or the one before it, that that like when you do destroy a diamond, there's often this um, observation that just like 
it almost vanishes. It turns into this dust that's just hard to collect. It just goes everywhere. Right. So the idea is that if you could pound or smash your diamond within the matrix of like a thick, sticky liquid substance that might help prevent some of it from being lost, just like flying off the table and going all over the place. Right, right. So what might you use? Uh, might you have used something like goat's blood? Um, Ogden points out that it's possible that they were that people use something that maybe wasn't blood, but contained blood or maybe just looked like blood. He cites a Sanskrit uh, recipe for medicinal diamond dust that involves first encasing the diamond in a mixture of beaten cotton plant and betel nut, which has a red coloration. Then you roast it several times and then you're able to to break it up. Oh, that's interesting. I you know, I've before heard of the I think I've heard of the juice of a betel nut being compared to blood or looking mm-hmm. like blood in some instances. So, yeah, I wonder if that could be a, a mistaken identity at a distance there. Yeah, I believe there are cases of uh, like Europeans encountering um peoples that were chewing betel nut and they would describe, oh, that their mouths were bloody. And it's like, no, their mouths weren't bloody. They were just you know, chewing betel nut. Yeah. But anyway, Ogden notes that lead was also used in the breaking of diamonds, something that uh, took on airs of magic since the lead is, of course, very soft and diamonds are very hard. Um, uh, but, but yeah, while diamonds are hard and have long been used to, to cut other gems, as we've been discussing, they're also quite brittle. Uh, and one means of breaking them and retaining the fragments was to first encase the diamond in lead before striking it with a hammer. Wax or a mixture made from horn was often used in some traditions, with the later idea connected to another tantalizing idea, that diamond might be broken with a ram's horn. Huh. I wonder if that's true. I mean, a diamond can be shattered with a sufficiently powerful blow, but everything I've read about and seen... Uh, that was used for that purpose would be like a, a strong metal hammer, you know, like a steel hammer or something like that. I, I, would a ram's horn be hard enough? I don't know. Well, I, I think maybe the idea is probably not, but it, in sort of the game of telephone and the and myth making, the idea of using um, yeah a mixture with ground horn. Uh, would be the thing you'd use. And then it gets, you know, in the same way that eventually you're talking about just soaking your diamonds in blood, or in this case, beating it with a horn. You know, it's just, it, it becomes this sort of magical, cryptic thing, but it perhaps has a connection to some sort of actual practice. Now, turning our attention to uh, ancient China, uh, first want to just mention some, uh, some points that um, Ogden makes about diamonds in China. Uh, he points out that research has indicated that diamonds... Uh, may have been used to polish uh, nephrite jade from a very early period in Chinese history. Um, I was looking at the source on this. It's from Lu et al., the earliest use of, of corundum and diamond in prehistoric China. This is from 2005. The authors write, quote, We also present physical evidence that later Lengzhu axes, uh, this would have been around um, uh, 2500 BCE, uh, this was a Neolithic jade culture, uh, quote, may, uh, made from the same previously undescribed rock whose most abundant uh, component is corundum, uh, where po- were polished to a mirror-like finish with a diamond abrasive. Hmm. Ogden points out that we have 5th century CE Chinese writings describing diamond-set finger rings worn by foreigners and sent to China from India, and in one case from Java. Java was apparently a source for Chinese diamonds prior to European involvement in Java during the 17th century. 
There's a gold ring with a set diamond that was found in a 1970 excavation of a 5th century CE Nanjing tomb. Uh, diamonds, of course, would have traveled on the Silk Road. And in an interesting connection of technologies, uh, again, thinking about the Silk Road, thinking about various uh, materials and technologies and, and bits of culture traveling uh, throughout Eurasia uh, along these trade routes, uh, he points out that an Italian innovation of a crank flywheel belt-driven grinding apparatus for working gemstones was seemingly based on silk spinning technology from China, and this would have been adopted during the 13th century. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, different different aims, different technological approaches uh, that end up speaking to each other across the Silk Road. Now, I was also looking around uh, at some other sources. I was looking at, a, at an older text, uh, The Diamond, A Study in Chinese and Hellenistic Folklore, Volume 15, Issues 1 through 2, by German anthropologist um, uh, Berthold Laufer. Uh, uh, this is from 1917. Uh, but he was it was a pretty big big deal. Uh, he he pointed out in this book that there were Song Dynasty tellings of the Valley of Gems. That story we talked about in the last episode, in which you have your diamonds down there at the bottom of this deep canyon or valley, and the only way to get them is, of course, to throw meat down there. The meat will stick to the diamonds, or the diamonds will stick to the meat rather, and then giant birds will swoop down in there, collect the meat, and bring that meat up to the surface. Or they'll eat the meat and you have to kill the birds and then harvest the diamonds from their stomachs. And often it was said that there were monsters of some kind or like venomous snakes down at the bottom of the valley, which is a reason you can't go down there and get the diamonds yourself. Right. And so this is a very infectious story. It spreads and, uh, you know, th uh, throughout uh, d uh, diamond cultures and it spreads with diamonds to other cultures. Uh, and so it's not surprising that there are also tellings of it when China in Chinese traditions. Uh, but the versions that Laufer brings up here uh, mentions that, OK, in, in th these tellings, the great eagles that feast on the diamond studied meat in the valley they just eventually poop out the diamonds. So they're not being, they're not, it's, there's no driving them away from the meat and getting the diamonds. There's no looking for their, um, there's not, no killing the birds and then digging them out of their bodies. No, you just have to go out to the Gobi Desert because that is where they're dropping their diamond-filled poops. Wow, that seems so much simpler than having to, to fight the bird and kill it. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, scour the poop fields. It does, you know, you're not hurting the birds, you're not stressing them out, you're not having, you know, having to fight a giant bird that's eating snakes the size of elephants and so forth. Now, th this, of course, got me wondering, it's like, well, why the Gobi Desert of, of all places? Um, you know, I'm, I was wondering, does it line up with reality at all? Uh, sadly, Lawford doesn't really mention the Gobi Desert at all elsewhere in this particular text. Uh, certainly some precious minerals are found in the Gobi region, though I've not read about diamonds being on that list. Perhaps they are. Perhaps I'm missing something. Um, it's worth stressing, as Laufer does, though, that the original Song Dynasty source on this wrote that he was not sure if the story was true or not. So it's another case of someone passing along this story, but also being like, I cannot vouch for this, but this is what has been told to me. I was just looking at various maps of uh, known diamond deposits and diamond mines in the world, and the Gobi Desert does not appear to be a hotspot. Yeah. So, um, but again, who, who knows exactly how the story comes together? Now, Laufer also touches on the subject of gemstone phosphorescence. Uh, I found this pretty interesting. So tales of luminous gems, the, you, these go way back. You can find examples of this in ancient writings and medieval writings. 
And apparently there is some truth to the idea. Some gems glow in the dark after excitement via friction or heat. Um, and such observations could have potentially been exaggerated into some of, the, some of the traditions around the world involving glowing stones. And there are some versions of, that are apparently unique to, tri- to Chinese traditions, uh, including tales of pearls that glow in the dark, and even the pupils of certain female whales described as moonlight pearls. Mm. So, yeah, there would be this, this, this pearl-like object that glows with like a, a moonlight uh, uh, luminosity. And you could pull it out in, in a dark room and you would see the glow. And these were seemingly regarded as a real thing during the 4th century CE. And as the author notes, uh, it's not entirely divorced from the real world. Uh, you know, phosphorescent biology in the marine world is is, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And it was noted by ancient observers. They might not have known as much about the undersea world as we know today, but they knew that sometimes you find things that kind of glow uh, or, or outright glow uh, in the uh, oceanic world. Yeah, and you don't even necessarily have to go to the deep ocean for that. That's where a lot of the examples we think of are. But there are, you know, uh, masses of uh, smaller organisms that float near the surface of the water and mm-hmm. can create bioluminescent glows or phosphorescence, uh, sometimes visible just, you know, in the waves. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the idea, you know, has at least a couple of feet on the, on the ground here, or maybe not the whole foot, but at least some toes touching the ground and some uh, fantasy and other aspects of the telling. But, um, uh, yeah, other tales of whale stones state that you could see a reflection in one at night and uh, that it had purifying qualities. And then there were also accounts that said that they could be found in the eyes of dolphins as well. Woffer points out that other examples of glowing items of biological origin in Chinese tradition includes the, the horn of the rhino. And also it was said that there was like a variety of will-o'-the-wisp uh, that would rise from battlefields. So uh, after some sort of terrible battle in which uh, humans and horses have died, uh, it would it would be this glow that rises up like a mist. And a variation of this would continue on into Japanese traditions with the idea being yeah, that this is somehow connected to the, the, the life force of the beings that uh, perished here. Mm. However, as Laufer discusses, there, there, there would seem to be something of an open question as to what extent ideas about glowing diamonds in Chinese tradition were based on observations of diamond phosph- phosphorescence, or if it was like a continuation of traditions surrounding pearls and other gems, and as diamonds are introduced and or diamonds are upgraded to gemstone status, they take on these ideas, you know. In general, ideas of phosphorescent diamonds may also be connected to the electrical qualities of diamonds, which uh, Pliny the Elder also wrote about. So basically, when a diamond is electrified or exposed to friction, it can pick up paper and other light substances, though it does not become a conductor. Uh, But observations led ancient writers at times to champion diamonds over lodestones as just magnetic powerhouses. Interestingly enough, in modern evaluation of diamonds, UV lighting is sometimes used to judge the authenticity of diamonds, looking for that for some sort of like a faint glow. And evidence that a diamond is actually magnetic to any degree or responds to a magnet is it's an indication that what you have here is not 100% carbon and is therefore not a real diamond. Mm. It, uh, if it has you know some sort of metal content to it, uh, well, it, it's not carbon. Interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, uh, it should come as no surprise that diamond is not just an earth thing. Diamond can be found in meteorites, uh, often in the form of nano diamonds. In particular, there's a hexagonal diamond as opposed to the cubical lattice of, of diamond as we've been discussing it. And it's, um, it's called Lonsdaleite. Uh, by some estimates, more than 50% harder than normal or terrestrial diamonds or diamonds as we've been discussing them. So this form of diamond was first identified in 1967 in the Canyon Diablo meteorite in the form of nanocrystals. Um, Lonsdaleite is formed when graphite-containing meteors strike the Earth 
with the resulting heat and stress transforming the graphite into this form of diamond. However, the largest of these are merely a micron in size. So it's not, a, a, if you're imagining sort of a, like a scene from the opening of the classic film, The Blob, you know, in which the a perfectly round meteorite cracks open and there's something inside it, perhaps a diamond in this case, uh, that does not seem to be the case. Uh, these would be very small. Um, so, you, But you do have uh, some interesting uh, appearances of this uh, material. Uh, Lonstolite deposits were apparently discovered in Tunguska, uh, having to you know, do with the Tunguska event, which, of course, is, a, uh, is a supporting evidence for the idea that what we're talking about there is a meteorite as opposed to a comet. And uh, it's thought that this uh, form of diamond also forms in major uh, planetary collisions as well. Yeah, I was reading about some other interesting cases of uh, probable impact diamonds that are found. You mentioned Tunguska, but um, there's a really big impact structure in northern Siberia called the Papigai impact structure, mm. which uh, was is the result of a huge impact like 35 million years ago. And it is also thought to have created a lot of diamonds when it struck. It's thought that the intense heat uh, and, and uh, energy of the impact event essentially uh, yeah, turned graphite that was already present in the rocks and the ground into diamonds. Wow. But again, we're still we're talking about nano diamonds here. And I realize that's probably not what's going to captivate everyone's imagination. You want to consider some serious space rocks. Uh, and indeed, stories about possible giant space diamonds do periodically pop up in the space news. Like this is the kind of thing that um, I don't have specific memories of this occurring, but it's the kind of thing that could pop up on like late night television. Uh, there's so many jokes you can make about s giant space diamonds. And there's something about like it's just an interesting reflection on how we treat diamonds here on Earth. Again, that they're rare. They're generally small. Uh, and the idea that there could be an enormous one out there in space somewhere, but we just can't get to it. Um, it's kind of an interesting tease. Though, I mean, the funny thing is people think like, oh, wow, if we could, you know, if we could just get this planet sized diamond back to Earth, <laughs> then I'd really be rich. But I don't know. Then it just seems like diamonds would be worthless if there was that much of them. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, what are we we're going to bring it back to Earth and bring it into our orbit around our planet? <laughs> what what happens next? I don't like the possibilities. You'd have to tightly control like how much of it that you mined and brought back to Earth so as not to flood the market and make it worthless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is uh, interesting. Um, there is th this idea that um, uh, I believe it is no longer favored at all, but um, the idea that Jupiter in our in our own uh, solar system, the idea that it could have a core that is essentially a huge diamond. And in fact, this is the idea proposed um, in, in a work of fiction by Arthur C. Clarke in his uh, book, 2061, Odyssey 3. Now, I haven't read Odyssey 3. I've, I've only read his first uh, book in the series, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, you know, based on his screenplay for the Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, it's my understanding, however, that the, this is not necessarily a trilogy in the sense of other like sci-fi and fantasy trilogies, uh, just kind of like it's more of a continuation of some of the same themes, but with more uh, futuristic events occurring. Now, you mentioned it, it is no longer favored, the idea that at the core of Jupiter, there's a big old diamond. But we did talk in our episode on the moons of Uranus about the idea that uh, the atmospheric dynamics in, within the atmosphere of 
Uranus produce diamond rain. Oh, that's this? right. Yeah, yeah the, the diamond rain. Yeah, that it that it rains diamonds within uh, within the gases of Uranus. So you can go listen to those episodes if you want the fuller explanation there. Oh, uh, well, I'm glad you pointed that one out. Yeah, that's also a great idea, and that that I think captivates the imagination because it's like it's like that uh, Treehouse of Horror episode where uh, where Homer freaks out because there are no donuts. Uh, in this one reality that he transfers into. And then after he leaves, it turns out it actually rains donuts here. Um, That's right. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, in this uh, in this Arthur C. Clarke book, which again, I, ha- I haven't read. Uh, if you have read it and you want to write in with more details, feel free. But basically the idea, spoiler for the second Odyssey book, 2010, but in that book, Jupiter explodes and becomes a star. And in 2061, it's revealed that since the core of Jupiter is made of diamond, there's now a mountain made of diamond on Europa. Uh, And uh, at the time of his writing, this was apparently not entirely out of the question, but the Galileo probe's findings gave us more insight into Jupiter's composition, and this ultimately ruled out the diamond core hypothesis. Mm. But again, you know, don't give up hope. There's still the, the diamond rains potentially on Uranus. Uh, and then there are some more far-flung candidates that you might consider for diamond worlds. These are two that have definitely popped up uh, in a, on a lot of like the space news websites. Uh, I'm going to uh, tell you about a couple of them here in case uh, you haven't heard. The first one is um, a place called uh, that's classified as 55 Cancri E, also known as uh, Janssen. This is 41 light years away in the Cancer constellation. It may have lava oceans. It may have a diamond core. Discovered in 2004, uh, we of course don't know for sure what its composition is, but uh, it, based on uh, observations uh, and observation data, it might be a rocky high carbon world, and its mass could be as much as one third diamond. Uh, however, don't buy your ticket just yet. More information is needed. More information is required. I don't want you to travel all the way there and find out that uh, it is not a rocky world and it is not one third diamond. Be a real time enough at last situation to like get there ready to mine the the diamond and then realize that, oh, it doesn't have oxygen. Yeah. (laughs) Now, another uh, place uh, in our uh, in our universe that has also popped up in these uh, various science stories is a white dwarf star classified as HD 190412C. This one's located 104 light years away, and scientists have theorized that it could be in the process of cooling and crystallizing into a giant diamond. Whoa. All right. You know, it sounds promising. However, <laughs> Big caveat here. This process is thought to take somewhere on the order of one quadrillion years, which would mean that this particular white dwarf, along with, oh, I don't know, all other stars, uh, is simply not old enough to have transformed yet. And I, I think it's going to be a hell of a waiting game if you show up there <laughs> anticipating the possibility that it's going to turn into a big diamond. But I love these ideas of like you know, giant space diamonds and in, especially in this in this this latter case, out of reach in both time and space. I mean, because anything on the measure of light years away is out of reach in both time and space to us. But especially uh, the idea of HD one nine zero four one two C, because uh, it's if it does become a diamond, it's going to become a diamond so far into the future that it, it's basically a dream. Maybe that's where the diamond punk technology regime actually arises. 
Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that a little bit when you were talking about diamonds as fuel. Like if you had some sort of diamond world, or it doesn't even have to be a diamond world, just we could borrow from Arthur C. Clarke and just imagine a scenario where you have an enormous mass of diamond on some world, some moon somewhere that was ejected from some sort of diamond core scenario. Uh, if that, and if, and if it provided diamond in enough uh, quantity, then perhaps you could use that to prop up your idea of a diamond furnace that powers something. I mean, maybe it ends up taking on religious connotations because the, I mean, the idea of a furnace that burns entirely on diamond, even if it's not practical from an energy standpoint, maybe there is something kind of like spiritually attractive about that. Again, assuming the culture that's powering the furnace sees diamond as something that is special and beautiful and holy and not just something to be used. Uh, to you know, work other gemstones or to fire up a furnace. Hmm. Well, should we blast off from the diamond planet for today? I believe so. Uh, but don't worry, we'll be back with another core episode on Thursday. Because Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's when uh, we have core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We're primarily a science podcast. Uh, on Fridays, though, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. On Mondays, we do Listener Mail. And on Wednesdays, we do a short-form episode. Uh, let's see what else uh, to stress here. Hey, if you haven't rated and reviewed the show before, uh, wherever you get the podcast, if they let you do that, do that for us. That helps us out in the long run. And if you have particular concerns, uh, write in to us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, like if you listen to the show on an Apple device or through like Apple Podcasts, why don't you pop in there and check and make sure that you are uh, subscribed to the show, that you're receiving downloads. Uh, that also uh, is uh, great for stuff to blow your mind. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.